This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. All right, welcome back. I'm Christopher Rose with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, and I'm honored to have as my guest in the studio today uh, Dr. Carter Findlay, who is Humanities Distinguished Professor in the Department of History at The Ohio State University. Um, He's also a past president of the World History Association and the Turkish Studies Association. Did I get that right? Right. All right. Welcome to the studio, Dr. Findlay. Thank you. Dr. Findlay is an expert on the history of the Turks. You're an Ottoman historian by training, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And uh, I'm taking as my point of departure uh, a question you pose uh, in an abstract for a talk you're giving uh, here at the university later today, which is we've had in previous episodes, people have discussed how difficult it can sometimes be to actually categorize what the Turkish people are. And you yourself raised the question, do they even form a coherent category? So I wonder if we could start off by asking why that's such a, a difficult question to answer. The difficulty has to do with where you look. The people who most readily perceive the Turks as a coherent category are the experts on language, uh, for whom the uh, Turkic languages form a much more unified and coherent category than, say, the Romance languages do. The Romance languages are prodigal in their variegation. And the Turkic languages, they have varied enough across time and space that they're not all mutually intelligible. But their commonalities are much, they still form a much tighter group than some of the other language families that you could compare them to. And that's true from the earliest text right up to the present and all across the Turkic world. So it's language that makes their unity most apparent. The philologists will sometimes say it's the only thing that unites them. But if you ask, how is that possible? Because language carries culture. How can your language unite you and you don't share culture? Well, it turns out that there are cultural traits that most Turks share, maybe not all of them. You see, as you go down the list of identifiers that you can look at, the coherence of the category starts to dissolve and eventually it vanishes completely. In the realm of culture, we can find commonalities that are rooted in their uh, nomadic past, the the conditions of life on the steppes of Central Asia in very early centuries. There are things that we can connect with that. The other thing that creates a really large commonality is the fact that most Turks eventually adopted Islam. There was a time when no Turks were Muslim. There are still Turks who have never been Muslims. But for the past 500 to 1,000 years, Islam has been the other second biggest identifier. And even for secular Turks today, the religion they're not practicing is Islam. I mean, they still take off on the Islamic holidays and things like that. Right, right. (laughs) And uh, so there is cultural content that most share. When you move further on down uh, the list, the variable in terms of which there is the least resemblance is what physical anthropologists look at. In America, we call this race. The Turks are not and have never been a coherent racial category. Istanbul today is famous as a place where you can stand on the bridge and seem to see all the faces of the world go by, and everybody connects that with the cosmopolitanism of the Ottoman past. Most people imagine that there was a time when the Turks were some sort of pure essence that looked sort of like 
you expect people from Eastern Asia to look. But the uh, archaeological remains, the early burials from uh, Xinjiang and Mongolia, find people with European-type features already in prehistoric times. And today, among the Uyghur Turks of China, who are the people who come closest to living where the Turks started out, one of the leading experts on the so-called Tarim mummies is a man named Dolkun Kamberi, and if you saw him walking down the streets, you might suppose he was from someplace like Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania. He looks like somebody from Northern Europe, mm-hmm. not somebody with a Chinese passport and a pure Turkish name. And he's, he's probably as Turkish as you can get, and he just exemplifies that they never were a coherent racial category. This is a blow to the nationalists and ultranationalists of the past who thought that there was once a time when there was a pure linguistic essence and a pure racial essence, and neither one of those ever existed. That sort of racial purity was never there. I mean, there is great consistency in the language going back to the earliest text, but the very earliest Turkic inscriptions are already full of foreign loanwords. So you mentioned that the sort of Turkish homeland, whenever that was, when would that have been, by the way, that we could put them back on the steps of Central Asia or... Well, the Chinese sources mention people that they call the Tujui, which apparently is still the term that you have to use for Turks other than just people from the Republic of Turkey when you're writing in Chinese, because my book is just being translated into Chinese, and there was a really long discussion about which term to use. The Chinese sources start to mention these people in the 550s of the Common Era. So this is the point at which a Turkic clan rebelled against one of these steppe empires that was their overlord, and they set up their own independence. So the Turks, under that name, appear in history as independent actors in the 550s of the Common Era. Now, of course, there presumably were Turkic people there earlier, but we don't have historical documentation of it. I've heard it described, and in fact, I think you mentioned in your book this this notion of the nomad factory spewing out successive waves westward. Uh-huh. Uh, do we have any sense of what drove those westward migrations? Was it social pressures, geographic pressures, that sort of thing? Well, you know, there's this famous line, I think it comes from some poem that somebody wrote in the 19th century, westward the course of empire takes its way or sweeps its way, whichever it is. And I think they were really talking about the uh, USA and and the westward expansion of the USA. But there is some kind of a phenomenon, some kind of factor in the northern hemisphere that does seem to produce westward expansion in both the eastern hemisphere and the western hemisphere. And I don't know what it is. It may have something to do with the circulation of the winds. You know, around the 40th degree north latitude, you get the, the winds are normally blow from the southwest. And, and I don't know whether this gave people, maybe that creates drier conditions. Another factor that's definitely involved in this is that Eurasia has these ecological zones. If you look at bioclimatic maps of Eurasia, the steppe belt and the uh, semi-arid zones north of there, it creates a very wide ecological corridor that expands almost from the Pacific out to the Ukraine, well, well, really into Hungary. Hungary is actually the end of this uh, uh, great step. And, well, well, for that matter, the Polish plain is about as flat as you can get. So it's, it's sort of a, not like a northern part of this. So it really extends into Europe. People who were well adapted to life on this environment, who had this mobile pastoral, you know, were good at raising the sheep and, and horses and camels that could flourish on this, this was like a sea to them. 
Now, there is a factor that creates a drive to move to the west because as you move further eastward in this step belt of Eurasia, the altitude rises and it gets colder and drier. So by the time you get to Mongolia, you're in an environment where your ability to support any given number of people and livestock on a given amount of surface area is going to be lower. And to improve your ability to feed your flocks, there's going to be a force that gives you the feeling you need to move to the west. So there are ecological factors that contribute to it. It's not like mathematical certainty, but we can see some of the things that contribute. Well, and of course, some of those waves that have gone westward, you know, we're very familiar with the Ottomans, but they were fairly late in the game, the Ottomans, were they not? The Ottoman Empire um, arises in the 13th century. Well, it actually starts in 1300, is what I mean to say, or right around there, 1299 or 1300. And by this time, the Turkic peoples have moved into the Middle East and become uh, actually the Seljuks are the first ones who become big players in the effort to reintegrate the Islamic world into one or a few large empires. And then the Ottomans are the next big one uh, after that, and they create the longest lasting state in Islamic history and one of the biggest. And I just want to sort of wrap up, since we started with language, I thought maybe we could finish with language. You were mentioning the commonality between the Turkic languages, but modern Turkish is quite different from Ottoman Turkish. It went through a series of of language reforms. And I wonder if you could just touch a little bit on how that has affected modern Turkey's relationship with its past. Well, it's affected it in complicated ways. Um, The extent to which the founding of the Turkish Republic was or was not a revolution is another one of these things that varies widely. And culture was one of the areas where it aspired to be the most revolutionary. And changing the alphabet and systematically trying to change the content and nature of the language was an effort at cultural revolution. It was to cut off the memories of the past. And the past means before 1928. So people are brought up not to know the literature before 1928. You can't understand it. It's, you know, some of those late Ottoman texts are not very hard to understand. In earlier periods, there's a lot that really is terribly difficult to understand. It was a deliberately constructed cut in the national consciousness. Once this is made and it gets a, a certain amount of consensus gets built up around it, or a major stream of opinion gets dedicated to it, it becomes very hard to reopen this question. One of the things that's most interesting about Ahmed Hamdi Tanpanar, one of the most uncontestedly great Turkish novelists of the 20th century, the guy, kind of guy who's everybody's favorite. Right. Uh, nobody dislikes Tanpanar that I know of. He was actually a cultural conservative. Not religion. He never talks about Islam in his books, but he's a cultural conservative who understood that the past is something we need to understand the present. And he works on this very, very, uh, through metaphor and, you know, imaginative scenarios in his books. But in some of his essays, he says this in a rather propositional way. He says the biggest question for us is, like Hamlet, we are living through a crisis of to be or not to be. And the solution to it is associated with how we relate to our past. Well, that's a... Interesting uh, proposition there. Well, the Ottoman language is extremely interesting in a whole lot of ways, but one of the problems about it was that, that it was never standardized in terms of things like its orthography. The grammar is consistent, but the spelling was never uh, stabilized. Really? 
And this is an interesting paradox in the comparative history of the Islamic peoples because Arabs and Persians both stabilized these things quite early on without any big state or government being involved. Right. It was, I think, done by consensus among the scholars. Yes. In the case of Ottoman Turkish, you had a powerful government that was dedicated to the use of this language. Maybe it had only been the work of scholars, then they would, <laughs> right. then they would have systematized it. Uh, out of curiosity, did the normal people speak Ottoman? Well, this, of course, is one of the justifications for okay. the reform. Normal people didn't. They did use phrases that are characteristic of, of Ottoman Turkish, like this uh, Persian-style Izafet construction, uh, you know, something like uh, Janabi Ali that kind of expression, those had a conversational usage. The problem about Ottoman was it was designed to show off your your status as a member of the cultural elite. And the purposes for which people used it historically until the middle of the 19th century, at any rate, were not purposes of mass communication. That meant it was ill-adapted as a means of mass communication. The language needed to be revolutionized, and actually in that sense, a revolution did start Sheriff Martin starts about a language revolution starting in the 1840s with the rise of the modern print media, which were intended for a large mass audience, and the writers did suddenly have to begin to use more accessible expressions, and they also had to get interested in, you know, not just displaying something, but actually reaching out, grabbing you by the shirt collar and say, hey, listen here, you know, to get your attention. Right. Plainer language and a more activist appeal to the readers was already coming in. Uh, In that sense, the Cultural Revolution of 1928, one of the things that's fascinating, you know, is the relationship between long-term and short-term currents of change. The language reform of 1928 is like a very sharp razor-cut kind of a thing that makes a, a, a decided before and after. But it's also part of a curve, an arc of cultural revolution, revolutionary change in the production of meanings that had started in the 1840s and didn't finish until long after 1928. It's always interesting to look at these things in in the broader context. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much. It's all the time we have. Dr. Carter Vaughn Findlay, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed it. And this has been another episode of 15 Minute History. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-Minute History. That's the numerals 1-5-Minute History. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas. Texas, or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.